You're listening to a Fat Cat Media podcast. This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. The Road Less Travelled. To the Road Less Travel Podcast, it's Nikki Shea back in the seat. Welcome to the the edition of the Australian Podcast, which documents and captures the Australian spirit of travel, discovery, and adventure. Where each week you can join myself, and together we'll experience adventures all around Australia. And there's always a story involved in each week. We're out caravanning, four wheel driving, fishing, camping, gold detecting, cooking, and exploring places, history, people, destinations, all rolled into each episode. And the Road Less Travel Podcast is a self funded, fully independent podcast. And We'd love your support. Got something that we should feature, review, discover, or explore? Simply drop .au. You can give me a phone call or SMS on 042 stage. And to find out more, jump onto the website fatcatmedia.com.au. Well, it has been a massive week. If you're a supporter of the Royal Family, if you're a supporter of the Monica, or if you're just in general uh, keeping on top of the news, it has been a massive two weeks since the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, and she was laid to rest earlier this week in a massive ceremony. I think that uh, the likes we will never see again, as will the likes we will never see again of a monarch of the calibre of Queen Elizabeth II. Also, too, a massive week for football finals. Hope that your team has managed to get into the football finals for 2022. And a big shout-out to to the team down at Radio Bayside down along the Mordialic coast down there in Melbourne. Big supporters of the show. They put the show on their radio sh- uh, radio programming on Monday night. So a massive thanks to Artie Stevens and the team down there. And if you're listening to the podcast from around that area, a warm welcome to you. Thank you very much for your support. We greatly appreciate it. And don't forget to drop us a line, fatcat at iinet.net.au or SMS or phone call 042 Of course, you can drop us a message on Facebook or on Instagram too. If you're searching for the podcast, we're on Audible. We're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio and wherever, of course, you get your podcast, you can find us on that particular platform too. And if you're doing a Google search, just search for the Roadless Roadless, the Roadless Travel Podcast with Nikki Shane. That's where you'll find us if you're struggling to find us by doing a Google search. So where are we off to this week? Well, I'm glad you asked. As you know, I am a big fan. I don't know, fan. I enjoy researching and reading, doing a lot of reading, watching a lot of videos, watching a lot of films regarding military history. And in particular, the air raids of Australia in 1942, going through to 1943, and I thought, well, this week it ties in really good with a trip that we did up, uh, as you recall, probably about three or four weeks ago, up around Wyndham in the northwest, right up in the northwest of Western Australia, in pretty his- inhospitable inhospitable territory as well. So Australia was under attack um, in 1942 and an invasion of the Australian continent appeared almost imminent. Just 10 weeks after Japan's sort of whirlwind invasion of Southeast Asia, Australia itself became the target of air and sea attacks and it pretty much happened not too long after they bombed Pearl Harbour. And you'll recall in previous episodes of The Road Less Travel when we have visited Darwin that uh, here's, here's something you can... Uh, keep in the memory bank for a bit of trivia, that the Japanese landed more bombs on Darwin than they did in the whole 
attack at Pearl Harbor. So uh, poor little Darwin absolutely copped it. And whether fighting on the front line in northern Australia, living on the land or experiencing sort of austerity measures in the city, Australians found a unity of purpose that they had not known before. They responded to the attacks and the threat of invasion in, I guess, what we can call their own ways, depending on where they lived and what jobs they did. And civilians took air raid precautions like digging shelters. They trained for civil defence. They learned first aid. They budgeted their rations and they worked in vital industries. Those in uniform, well, they crewed anti-aircraft artillery, staffed the lines of communication and supply or searched for mines or submarines. All Australians were touched by the war. Now, attacks on Australia continued well into 1943, and it wasn't until September that year that Prime Minister John Curtin finally announced to his cabinet that the danger of invasion had passed. There was still a victory to be won, but that was elsewhere, and Australia was no longer threatened. So I guess to let's give us give it some context of the defence in February 1942. Now, the Menzies government committed Australia to war against Nazi Germany in September of 1939, and by February 1942, Australia had raised a four-division expeditionary force, the 2nd Australian Imperial Force, or the AIF. Three of these, the 6th, 7th and 9th Divisions, were serving in North Africa or in the Middle East, and most of the men of the 8th were killed or captured in Asia. Many of the Royal Australian Navy's warships, they were deployed in the Mediterranean Sea or the Indian Ocean, and most of Australia's airmen, they were serving in the European theatre or training in Africa or North America. So Australia was barely equipped to defend itself. However, though, it did have several militia divisions that would be used, and local production of war material had commenced. And the Japanese, they had sort of smashed a heap of attacks off in the Pacific and just after midnight on the 8th of December 1941, the Japanese troops, they began the invasion of the British Malaya. Hours later, another Japanese force attacked the US Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. It was still 7th of December in the Western Hemisphere and the attack drew America, therefore, into the Second World War. Then the Malaya barrier was breached. With the fall of Singapore and the Netherlands East Indies meant that the Malay barrier, which was a notional chain of defences across Southeast Asia, had been well and truly beat, breached rather by early 1942 and Australia was open to attack. An attack it, it did receive. 42 and November of 1943, the Australian mainland domestic airspace, the offshore islands and coastal shipping were attacked at least 111 times by aircraft from the Japanese Navy Air Force and the Imperial Japanese Army Air Force too. Now these attacks came in various forms from large-scale raids by medium bombers to torpedo attacks on ships and to strafing runs by the fighters. In the first and the deadliest set of attacks, 242 aircraft they hit Darwin on that morning of the 19th of February 1942, killing at least 235 people and causing immense damage. The attacks made hundreds of people homeless and resulted in the abandonment really of Darwin as a major, a major naval base. Now the attacks were upon units and personnel from the Air Force, the Army and the Navy and also the United States Army Air Forces and their Navy plus of course the British and the East Indies Air Force. The Japanese air crews also targeted civil infrastructure including harbours, the civil airfields, railways and fuel tanks and some civilians as I mentioned were killed. Although the main defence was provided by the RAAF and the Allied fighters, a number of Australian Army anti-aircraft batteries in northern Australia also defended against Japanese air raids. So that gives you some context of February 1942 right through to November 1943. And that is just in the sort of the northern parts of, um, of Australia 
isolating Darwin as an example, but they they spread right down the coast, right down to just north of Geraldton in Western Australia, and of course down the east coast of Australia too, where uh, Wollongong in New South Wales, for example, if you take a drive through the city of Wollongong today, you could be forgiven for thinking that the city played no role in the war, and there's little indication this city was once heavily defended among, among against a much feared Axis attack. If you take that uh, drive, you'll find some remnants of the city's home defences, the well-developed Port Kembla Heritage Park with its cluster of tank traps and ruined gun instalments alludes to the history of a city that was once extremely important to Australia's war effort. The site known as Breakwater Battery was the first, smallest and weakest of three interconnected strong points designed to defend the industry of the Illawarra region of New South Wales from attack because they thought that the attack was going to come along that coast and really smash into um, the port of Newcastle and then try and triple, cripple rather the industry and the port of uh, Port Kembla all the way down through Wollongong and uh, and so on. So it was a major attra- attack that uh, was almost thought as being imminent in Australia. But I do digress at the moment because this week, as we go back to where it all began, we're heading to Wyndham in far, uh, far north of Western Australia. Now, for anyone who's been fortunate enough to be visiting or holidaying in the top end of Western Australia, you may find yourself on the old section of the Wyndham Pier. And when you do, spare a thought for the motor vessel Kulama resting in the deep mud of the bay, not far from where you're standing. The only hint of her location is the eerie swirling water over her grave. Let's talk about what happened to the MV Kulama. And it's, it is, too, one of the most intriguing wartime dramas which occurred off the West Australian coast in February 1942 concerning attacks made by Japanese aircraft on the motor vessel Kalama. The story of this ship, the attack, and the subsequent events was well-researched by Bill Lone and published in the Kalama Incident back in 1992, which I first stumbled upon, and then it was updated in 2004. The previous year, the ABC had produced a documentary called Malice or Mutiny, which is the Kalama Incident, and I really recommend if you jump onto YouTube and have a look at that. It is fantastic. That is uh, back in 2002. It's called Malice or Mutiny, the Kalama Incident, and produced by ABC. You can find it on YouTube. Kalama being an Aboriginal word for waterfowl, it was built by the well-known shipbuilder Harland and Wolfe, not in their famous Belfast yard, think Titanic, but in a subsidiary yard on the Clyde. She was the pride of the Western Australian Government's State Shipping Service, which is a small company which serviced the remote settlements in the sparsely populated north of the vast state. Kalama was 4,068 gross tonnes, 348 feet or 106 metres in length, with a beam of 52 feet or 16 metres and a 19 foot or 6 metre draft. A reinforced keel was fitted for sitting on the bottom, bottom rather, at the northwestern ports where tides would obviously rise and fall in about 10 metres. She had a generously sized crew of about 90, which included two stewardesses and could carry 100 passengers in some degree of comfort with the latest in sort of funky louver ventilation. The meat seasoned workers were carried in the deck sleeping in hammocks and she could carry refrigerated cargo and up to 500 head of live cattle. The Kalama was fitted with two of the latest Danish manufactured Burmeister and Wayne six-cylinder diesel engines which were driving twin propellers, which giving her a quite a respectable maximum speed of 16 knots. 
Now, in late November 1937, Captain Jack Eggleston, together with his wife, they left Fremantle aboard an Orient liner bound for England, then took the train to Glasgow to stand by his new ship. He was joined by the Australian crew and the ship undertook trials and then sailed on her delivery voyage on the 7th of April 1938. Later that month, Kalama berthed for the very first time at her home port of Fremantle and commenced her maiden voyage to the northwest ports and Darwin on the 23rd of May in 1938. Now, both Captain Jack Eggleston and his chief officer, Ken Reynolds, feature greatly in this story. And that's because both men had quite similar careers. They attended the same school in Frio and both entered the merchant service as junior seamen. They were very competent, practical men who'd both come up uh, by the hard way in gaining their master certificates and both had served through the Great Depression where jobs at sea were often rather difficult to find. Born in 1899, Jack Eggleston was the older of the two and had started his sea service during World War I, where he had an unusual distinction for a young merchant sailor being mentioned in dispatches. In 1935, a cyclone devastated the mostly Japanese pearling fleet at Broome, sinking some 20 luggers with the death of 140 souls. MV Kalinda went to the rescue of survivors. For his bravery, Captain Eggleston received a letter of gratitude and inscribed gold watch from the Commonwealth Government. Overall, Jack was an outspoken but quite cheerful man who was well respected and liked to drink. Now, born in 1902, Ken Reynolds was three years younger than his captain and was the very opposite in character, being of very serious disposition. He was quiet and he rarely drank, which in those days was unusual. He was a very private man and rather aloof. He was a stickler for regulations and a keen disciplinarian. In a small shipping company, always in the shadow of his captain, he had to wait patiently and possibly frustratingly too for many years to be given the opportunity for his own command. The difference to in pay between the chief officer on £35 per month and a master on £70 per month may have also led to some resentment. Now, after a normal run stopping at intermediate ports, Kulama reached Darwin on the 10th of January 1942. The port was now full of shipping preparing for war. After discharging her passengers and cargo and preparing for a return journey, she invited the captain to discharge all passengers and cargo and to be ready to sail the next day for a secret destination. He was later informed that he'd also be carrying up to 400 troops, together with their equipment in support of troops from the 8th Division, which were already at Kupang in the Dutch West Timor, Sparrow Force they were known as, and those on the Dutch island of Ambon, which was the Gull Force, what they were known as. Escorted by HMAS Warigo, they sailed on the afternoon on the 17th of January. By this time, Kulama was armed with a three hundred three machine gun on either bridge wing and a 50mm gun on the poop deck. The latter being intended to ward off submarines, it could also not elevate above 15 degrees and was therefore useless as an anti-aircraft weapon. In a newfound role, lookouts were doubled and the guns were manned by onboard troops, although the ship now carried a gunner amongst her merchant crew. They had to become used to the station keeping and zigzagging patterns, altering courses every 10 to 15 minutes in a zigzag formation so that they wouldn't be pinged off by submarines. Kupang was richly safe on the 19th of January with the ship anchoring off the harbour and disembarking troops and supplies using her boats. It was learnt that another merchantman had been bombed and sunk nearby. Later, they were joined by two, uh, rather, they were joined by an old American World War I four-stacker USS Pillsbury. They left Kupang on the afternoon of the 21st of January and arrived off Ambon about 24 hours later. And after negotiating the Dutch minefield, they came alongside.
Here, though, the situation was much more tense as a Japanese submarine had been sighted, which was fired upon by the US destroyer and bombed by RAAF Hudson aircraft with unknown results. This action attracted the attention of a Japanese reconnaissance plane, which was chased away by the Australian bomber. Now, after disembarking the Australian troops at the request of the Dutch authorities, they embarked 80 civilian evacuees, mainly being Dutch women and children. Because of the possibility of a Japanese attack, they left Ambon under a cover of darkness and arrived back in Darwin at noon on the 24th of January, being a Saturday. The Dutch passengers remained on board the ship, which sailed south under the escort of HMAS Swan. After clearing port, the escort dropped death charges and a suspected submarine, or on, on rather, a suspected submarine, and they reached Fremantle at 10 a.m. on the 2nd of February. Now, the final voyage of this splendid ship began at 3:30 p.m. on a hot midsummer's day on the 10th of February, Tuesday, in 1942. Now, while HMAS Sydney had just been sunk by the German auxiliary cruiser Cormoran off the WA coast a few months earlier, and the Japanese presence was getting even closer, no escort was provided and the ships were not yet sailing in convoy. On this voyage, however, 14 army personnel were added to the passenger list going as far as Wyndham. It is assumed that they helped to man the ship's armament. The ship was still painted in her peacetime colours and in addition to her armament, the only other precaution was to darken the ship at night. Kulama maintained her normal run with stops, sometimes for only a few hours at Geraldton, Carnarvon, Onslow, Cossack, Simpsons Point, Port Hedland, Broome and Derby. With these intermediate ports behind her, she sailed from Derby at about 3pm on Thursday the 19th of February into a perfect evening and a starry night with the sun rising at 5.50am the next morning. At 11.30am, the alarm bells were rung when an aircraft was sighted, which proved to be a Japanese reconnaissance plane. As the plane circled the ship, fire was opened from the bridge-mounted machine guns. For a while, the large caliper aftergun joined in, but was proving worthless in the AA role. The ship carried out evasive action by twisting and turning at regular intervals so as not to present a steady target. The aircraft then dived from about 800 metres and dropped three or four bombs, which luckily all missed, but some were dangerously near misses. The ship radioed that she was being attacked and gave her positions at 35 kilometres off Cape Londonderry. The attacker then flew off, presumably, to his base at Ambon, about 1,200 kilometres in the distance. But peace did not last long, as at about 1.30pm, three Type 97 float planes from the Japanese Air Force positioned themselves in an arrow formation. On their first pass, a bomb hit the ship. The captain ordered that oil drums on the upper deck be lit, with the smoke to confuse the enemy into thinking severe damage had been done. The planes then returned for a second run in which they released the remainder of their bombs. In a little over 30 minutes they were gone and Kulama was severely damaged with at least three direct hits. It was later discovered that one unexploded bomb lay deep in her engine room. An SOS had been sent which was picked up in Darwin and relayed to the nearest settlement at the Columbaroo Catholic Mission. Surprisingly though, the injuries amongst the passengers and crew were minimal. One passenger, Bluey Plummer, had been struck by a bomb and was badly injured with a large head wound. Two others received shrapnel wounds. The ship was still able to make headway, but water was rising in the damaged holes and in the engine room. In assessing the seriousness of the damage, a decision was made to try and save the ship and, if necessary, evacuate all non-essential personnel.
The nearest port being Wyndham was 140 nautical miles away. The advantage of this port was its large meatworks and an extensive engineering workshop. However, it was agreed that the ship could not be kept afloat long enough to make this port without first having repairs made to stem the flooding. On making the coast, the captain ordered abandoned ship and all non-essential personnel and provisions were loaded into the ship's boats under the direction of Chief Officer Reynolds. They then found a perfect cove with its own supply of fresh water from a nearby waterfall which they called Calamity Bay. This is where they spent the first night under makeshift tents with armed sentries posted against would-be looters and crocodiles. In a remarkable feat of seamanship with no rudder and manoeuvring by main engines and avoiding reefs and with a crew of 20 volunteers, Captain Eggleston safely anchored his ship was about 5 kilometres. It was only later that they discovered that the ship was lying on a small island separated by the mainland by 500 metres of tidal water. And let's just put it in perspective. At this time of year, it's February. Absolutely cooking. Daytime temperatures were high, making work routines difficult. And at night, the temperature rarely fell below 30 degrees. The main problem was biting insects. Swarm, swarming sandflies, mosquitoes, bushflies and huge horseflies all seeking to feast on human blood. On the bright side, at Calamity Bay, a rock pool had been discovered allowing freshwater baths. Now, Chief Officer Reynolds had insisted their camp be sighted so as not to be visible from the air should the Japanese return. He also established an air raid lookout on a promontory which was manned during daylight hours by a sentry and an empty kerosene tin which could be banged to raise the alarm. They built a storeroom, separate accommodation for the women and children, dug latrines and even built a small hospital. Reynolds decided that to save Plummer it would be necessary to operate. Assisted by his second officer, the two stewardesses and a naval rating called Heffernan, who was also a passenger, they carried out the operation. Using morphine for sedation, they spent two and a half hours carefully stitching the top of Plummer's skull into place. While the patient lost a lot of blood, he did survive the ordeal. When this was done, the alarm was raised when an enemy aircraft suddenly appeared overhead. He did not appear to notice the disguised shore camp and proceeded around a bend, and when they heard machine gun fire followed by bomb explosions, they knew it was the enemy. When the aircraft approached the ship, most of her salvage crew were ashore and quickly hid in the bush. The plane came in low, raked the ship with machine gun fire, then dropped three bombs, which remarkably all missed this sitting duck. The plane then flew off without inspecting the damage. The salvage crew of 21 persons now comprised the captain, the chief engineer Joe Welch, all the engineering staff and four volunteer civilian passengers with trade backgrounds. In a thorough inspection of the hull, it was found that the worst damage was at the number four hole, which had been penetrated by a bomb. The adjacent bulkhead had also been holed, letting water into number three hold, which is now full of rotting meat cargo. Imagine the smell too. The main engines appeared to be working. Two generators had been damaged beyond, beyond repair, but another was operating and this was used to give lighting so they continue working in the relative cool of the evening. The ship's pumps were damaged, but the engineers believed they could repair those in about two days and could start pumping out the holds and flooded engine room spaces. It was unlikely that the steering gear could be repaired and for good measure the radio was out of, um, was out of action. They could then attempt to make the ship, ship safe by covering the gaping holes with cement-based plugs and there was a plentiful supply of cement in the cargo. 
By Sunday the 22nd of February, the Columbaroo Mission received a coded message which read, Ship beached approximately 100 miles northeast of Mission. Request you send party to contact survivors. Report condition of ship, Naval Officer Darwin. The mission replied, We'll send lugger tomorrow. It will take at least four days before any report can be obtained. The father superior of the mission decided to send his junior, Father Sands, with a crew of seven mission Aboriginals in their lugger. Unfortunately, though, the lugger was then at the old Drysdale River mission about 30 kilometres away, so a land expedition was also prepared of two Aboriginals carrying a letter from the father superior saying that help was on its way. These runners had to cover 150 kilometres over rugged country to uncertain destination. Now, owing to a storm, the lugger loaded with what limited provisions the mission could spare could not depart until the early hours of the 23rd of February. And while all this activity was going on on the plane, Spotter sounded his warning signal, but this time it turned out to be a friendly RWF, rather, Wirraway, which circled the ship and then continued on its way. The plane landed at the Columbaroo mission and briefed the staff, saying that a message in the sand said, All safe, three wounded. On the morning of the 24th rather, of February, it was a Tuesday, the alarm again sounded as they were overflown, this time by a friendly Lockheed. This was the first of three aircraft to inspect the ship on that day, so by now it was obvious that shore authorities knew the exact position of the ship, if not her condition. At about 4pm the same day, a small vessel was spotted at the entrance of the bay. This was the uh, junior father and his crew who were welcomed by Chief Officer Reynolds and his companions. It was to be a short visit as the father wished to get back to the ship before, or rather wanted to get back to the ship before nightfall, and he managed to find Captain Eggleston to have a conversation with him before returning to the lugger. The next day, the two native runners arrived at Calamity Bay and they arrived at the camp with their letter. They'd travelled almost non-stop, day and night, across difficult terrain, swimming rivers and fording creeks to complete their trek in about 48 hours. It was now decided to move the wounded and others suffering from fever, plus the women and children in the lugger, back to the mission. This involved moving 15 from the camp to the lugger, including the critically ill Bluey Plumber. The lugger anchored overnight, then with the aid of the morning tide, it reached the old Drysdale River mission in the afternoon of the 26th of February. State ships had hired an aircraft and sent a Mr Gibson, who was a former engineer in Kulama, to the mission to assess the situation. He later flew over the ship and exchanged messages by halograph, and while this may have been helpful, it did not have any material bearing on the situation. When we come back, we'll take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you of a difference of opinion, or was it mutiny? Back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the Road Less Travel Podcast. Fat Cat Media offers consultancy and advice. If you are a motocross racer, motorcycle racer, trying to get ahead in the sport, or perhaps you have a business in the motorcycle industry, or you're hosting an event, a stage show, or a race meeting. With over 25 years industry knowledge and experience, we can help on a variety of platforms, whether it be as a racer or for those within the motorcycle and motorsport industry. We help you individually and your event with clear and strong strategic plans with direction on how to achieve your goals as a racer or hosting an event within the industry. For more information, email fatcat at iinet.net.au. You're listening to the Road Less Travelled podcast with Nikki Shea. Welcome back to this week's edition of The Road Less Travel, where we're talking about, was it mutiny 
or was it a difference of opinion with the MV Kalama? And if you want to find out where Kalama Bay is and where it all happened, you can. Um, there's tours that you can do when you leave Wyndham. And um, Kalama Bay, if you're trying to think of it in a mud map in your head, between Kalambaru and Wyndham, um, right on the tip of the Joseph Bonaparte group, um, and it's an inhospitable area, but you can visit it. There's tours that you can do, and it's a pretty little place. I'll put up some images on our Facebook page as well. So back to the story that we were talking about before we went to the break. Now, the situation at the ship was reaching a climax, and they were operating in demanding conditions under increased stress as they tried to ready the ship for her return to deep water. Captain Eggleston was possibly becoming short-tempered as he again returned to Calamity Cove in the evening seeking more volunteers. And this may not have been helped in that his appearance was somewhat dishevelled that he may have had a few drinks after a hard day's work. The captain outlined his plans for trying to sail to Wyndham in the next few days as they were now able to pump water out of the holds and a favourable high tide would, would create the ideal conditions. He asked each of his deck officers by name for assistance, but each refused, deeming the difficult navigational passage to Wyndham and thus closer to the enemy was, would be to proceed south to Broome. When the captain then addressed the group, none too tactfully again seeking volunteers, tempers flared, resulting in an unfortunate confrontation. After the captain returned to his ship, the chief officer called the still smouldering crowd together and calmed them down, asking for patience and promising that arrangements were underway for those fit enough to walk overland to safety. While the chief officer could possibly have done more to support his captain, he did keep excellent control of those inside his camp and retained their respect. So plans were now made to send two overland groups guided by local Aborigines to walk to the nearest habitation at the old Drysdale River Mission, about 120 kilometres away. This first party comprised 28 passengers and 11 soldiers plus two guides. The second group was 23 passengers and 31 crew plus two guides. And when these had departed, 44 still remained in the beach camp, including some walking wounded, 10 were passengers and the remainder crew. There was a further 27 crew and passengers on the ship. On Saturday 28th of February, with sufficient water pumped out, the ship floated off and water was pumped back into the ballast tanks to keep her in position. On the same day, a small seaplane landed near Kalama. She had on board Captain Gregory from the Darwin Office of State Ships. He informed Captain Eggleston that a larger flying boat was being arranged to take off as many possible from the shore party, but that all would re- all those remain and they'd have to fend for themselves. So at about 6.30pm, Sunday the 1st of March, the ship floated off and the engine telegraph ran standby. The anchor was raised and slowly, without steering gear and somewhat unsteadily, the ship made her way across the bay. The Cambridge Gulf, with its many hazards, was entered about 5.30am on the next morning and, in an incredible feat of seamanship and with great credit to all involved in saving the ship, at 11am they berthed alongside the jetty at Wyndham. What an amazing feat. However, she was listing badly and taking on more water than she had started this very short voyage. So as quickly as possible, cargo was discharged, and this continued the following morning, but with water still rising in her holds, this had to be halted. To add to their woes, on Tuesday the 3rd of March, Wyndham and Broome were subjected to enemy air attacks by eight zero fighters coming in over Wyndham, raining cannon fire on the aerodrome, the meatworks, and of course poor old Kalama. Early that evening at about 4.45, this gallant ship, she'd had enough and she turned over and laid to rest with her port side exposed above the waterline. On the same day at 7.45am, Qantas Camilla 
seaplane put into Calamity Bay and within 30 minutes had taken off with 25 on board with priority given to the injured and passengers and finally crew. Now only 19 men remained on the beach but not for long as at 2pm the mission lugger pulled into the bay and took off the remainder of the Kalama's crew. The Overlanders now found themselves on the wrong side of the fast-flowing Drysdale River. But help was at hand, and around mid-morning on the 2nd of March, six mission boys arrived at the opposite bank with precious ropes. The best swimmer now plunged into the torrent and carried the rope across. When this was secured to trees and boulders, the men proceeded hand over hand to reach safety. It took about four hours for all to safely cross the raging torrent. The fittest of the party wanted to press ahead with two guides and cover the remaining 18 kilometres to the mission. They were exhausted, battered and bruised, but they reached sanctuary after midnight. The remainder rested overnight and a more leisurely pace found the mission on Tuesday the 3rd of March. The mission was now overflowing with nearly 150 distressed mariners eating into its very limited supplies. And it was here that that following a stroke, second radio officer Fred Stansfield died and lies buried at the mission. Remarkably, though, he was the only fatality during this whole ordeal. At 6am on Sunday the 15th of March, a party of 25 volunteers departed Drysdale to help clear the Columbaroo airfield about 30 kilometres distance which had been recently attacked by the enemy. This was done to make it ready to uplift the stranded mariners. The first planes arrived on Thursday the 19th of March and it was not until Saturday the 21st that all had been evacuated mainly to Adelaide. Captain Eggleston and other survivors from Kulama at Wyndham were mostly airlifted to Perth, arriving on the 15th of March. The remainder made their way by ship and it wasn't until early April that all survivors were accounted for. Now, a number of inquiries were held into the loss of the Kulama, the first taking place just six weeks after the ship rolled over and sank. Another by the West Australian State Government exonerated both Captain Eggleston and Chief Officer Reynolds of any blame associated with the loss. In April 1942, the naval officer Darwin, he sent HMAS Southern Cross to Wyndham and under the command of Lieutenant M. Boyd to resolve the problem posed by the wreck that was still blocking the port. This officer conducted a survey and presented a report. In summary, this said Kulama had now sank a further two metres into the mud and her port side was now only exposed 450 millimetres above the low water mark. There was only brief mention of an unexploded bomb in her hull. Now, various unsuccessful attempts were made to salvage the ship until April 1946, when the salvage vessel, which is Caledonian Salvor, I think it's called, arrived at Wyndham. After lengthy and expensive operations, all this attempt had to show was that the ship had sunk deeper into the mud, and that's where she lies to this very day. In 1947, an attempt to refloat Kulama was unsuccessful. The hull was raised the following year only to clear that Wyndham Harbour. It was towed out to sea and scuttled. Both Captain Eggleston and Chief Officer Reynolds returned to sea with the State Shipping Service, and the latter was promoted to captain. Captain Eggleston reached the pinnacle of his profession, becoming Marine Superintendent of the company, and when he retired for his position, he was succeeded by Captain Reynolds. And that wraps up the story of what happened with the MV Kulama in 1942 off the coast of Western Australia. What a, a remarkable tale of survival with people walking overland. The tale of being able to repair the ship and then head to Wyndham, their final destination to unload. And then also the Board of Inquiry, which, as I mentioned earlier, exonerated both men 
from any wrongdoing. If you want to know more and find out more of um, malice or mutiny on the Kalama, check out the show notes below. I've put the actual one-hour episode of the documentary, and it gives a really good insight. There's a lot of interviews with survivors, and there's also a recreation of the Board of Inquiry as to what happened afterwards, and uh, that is in the show notes below. My name is Nikki Shea. Thank you so much for your company this week, and don't forget if you have the opportunity to head up to Wyndham, stand on the uh, jetty there, and you'll see the swirling water. That's where the Kalama actually lies. So uh, if you do happen to be there, make sure you go out and visit there, chuck a few flowers out there, and um, and pay your respects to uh, what a amazing tale of human endurance ingenuity and despite why um, the interaction between the two gentlemen um, they got their destination with only uh, one person passing away well not a bad effort at all my name is Nikki Shea thank you so much for joining us on the road less travel podcast and I hope to catch you out there very soon on the road thanks for your company talk to you next week take care bye for now Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travelled is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media. 